Good morning. How's everybody doing? You good? Made it with an hour less of sleep, yes? Good. I won't, I won't call for quite as much interaction. I understand. I'll let you guys just sit there quietly. So David Wilcox, uh, singer-songwriter out of Asheville, North Carolina, has a uh, song called That's What the Lonely Is For. And he tells the story of writing that song and says that he wrote it when he went to tour the Biltmore Mansion. Anybody familiar with the Biltmore Mansion? Yeah, so it's the largest private dwelling ever built by, uh, I think, a Vanderbilt, someone in the Vanderbilt family, right? And he's, it's in Asheville, North Carolina. That's where David is. And he says that some friends came to visit and they went to visit the Biltmore Mansion. They paid their 26 bucks or whatever it was and they went in. And he said that, you know, his friends are just like, wow, this is amazing. And they're loving it. And there's, ooh, wee, whoa, wow, you know, kind of going through the whole place, just, just flabbergasted by the whole deal. And he recognized that somewhere in the middle of it, he started to get really bugged. And he started to kind of take himself aside and say, Dave, you know, like, why are you always, don't, you don't always have to be Mr. Critique about these things. Just like enjoy it, right? It's not your house. You don't have to vacuum it. And he's like, no, I, I recognize that I was saying this is wrong. And he's like, well, it's, you know, it's ostentatious. Maybe it's a little stupid, but what's so wrong about it? And he said, I realized that why I started to feel it was so wrong and the reason I was getting so bugged is that I started to get bugged when I read this plaque about what, how Vanderbilt spent a lot of his time. He said that he was alone a lot in the house. You know, he said, so he said, I realized that I was getting bugged for what he calls metaphorical reasons, right? When he's bu more bugged than the situation should allow for. And you recognize he's bugged for some metaphorical reason. He said, I realized that, you know, I was thinking about this house. I was thinking about Vanderbilt and coming down, you know, every morning, you know, he's got his robe on, he gets his cornflakes and he sits down at a table. And he said, it's one thing to be alone, but why be alone at a table that'll seat 350 people? Like why rub it in? Right, and he said, I recognized that why I was bugged is I started to kind of think that my heart is made that way. That just like this big old lonely empty mansion, that my heart is huge. It's cavernous. It's got all this space to fill, all this fullness that it wants, but perhaps there's not enough fullness to fill it. Maybe there's not enough love, not enough peace, not enough joy to fill this cavernous space that my heart has. And so David Wilcox says, I was bugged for metaphorical reasons, right? That I just felt like, you know, this house is too much like my heart. But then he said, I realized that, you know what? This is not, my heart is not some stupid ostentatious house. My heart is designed and it's designed by one who has the ability to fill it with all the fullness that he intended it to have. And as I began to understand that, you know, he, he, talk, he writes the song, that's what the lonely is for, saying perhaps it's only that kind of space and that feeling of loneliness that we've all experienced that can keep us looking long enough to find the one who can cause us to, to have our hearts filled up. And I don't tell you that story because um, necessarily about the, the metaphorical part of it, but because I recognize something very similar. I was on vacation this last week and I started to get bugged. Uh, but not for what I would call metaphorical reasons, what David might call metaphorical reasons. I would call the spiritual realities that lie underneath our physical daily activities. Have you ever been bugged by something that you feel like is just below the surface? You can't quite put your finger on it. So I was on vacation. Uh, I was with my wife and we had a great time. It was, the, I mean, it was Fantastic. We went away to a resort. We were in Mexico. I mean, I'm talking about sitting by the pool and there's just, we were pampered. There's people, you know, you want another drink? You got it. Come on, you know, another, another Coke, please. Thank you. Yes, right. 
great restaurants, like something like 19 restaurants at this resort. I mean, it is ridiculous, right? And, and I realized about halfway through the week, and the way this happens to me is I realize it because I start behaving poorly. Uh, so I'm, my critical spirit starts coming out. Like, I don't know what it is for you, right? But for me, what I recognize is when I'm not in the right frame of mind, what happens is I start to get, I just, instead of looking at people through a lens of the love of the Holy Spirit that he has for every human being on the planet, I start to look at people through this lens of criticism, right? Don't look at me like that. You do something similar, whatever it is, right? <laughs> no, I, so I, I start to recognize that and I start to realize like something's off, like something's not right, right? I, nothing wrong with being on vacation, nothing wrong with having time with my wife, definitely nothing wrong with not having to change diapers for a week. It's awesome. Right? I mean, it is, that is, that is spiritual, by the way. <laughs> and so I recognize as, as this is happening, the thing that dawns on me is that um, as I'm looking, at, I'm looking at vacation the wrong way, right? As I'm being waited on hand and foot and I'm, you know, having this time of rest, what I, here's what I realized was wrong is that the reason I was getting so bugged is that I had come into vacation looking for my rest in the wrong place. I had entered into the week thinking that I would find my rest. This wasn't a conscious thought. It was a subconscious thing. But I'd entered into the week believing I would find my rest in indulging my appetites. A lot of good food, you know, sitting by the pool, some extra sleep, right? No kid coming in at 3 a.m. Daddy, I want to get in the bed, you know, and sleeping horizontally and kicking me out. Right? I thought that's where I was going to find my rest. I thought that my rest was going to be in indulging my appetites. What I didn't realize is that that's not where rest is found at all. Rest, and there's nothing wrong with those things. Those things can facilitate rest if your mind is in the right place, but they can also inhibit your rest if your mind is in the wrong place. And I found that my mind was in the completely wrong place. And here's why I think it was in the wrong place. Here's the spiritual thing that was bugging me is that I had failed to connect the fact that I worship a crucified savior to my understanding of where my rest comes from. That I started to think of rest as an indulgence of the appetites rather than rest as something that comes from the fact that I have been given peace with God through the crucifixion of my Lord Jesus Christ. And that my true rest is not found in some extra sleep and it's not found in a good meal, albeit those are fine things. My true rest is found in the fact that I have peace with God. And therefore, if I really want to experience rest, I mean deep soul rest for my weariness, it's not found in anything else other than just getting away, pulling away, and being with God. Because the cross has purchased for me peace with God, rest with God. And he is my rest. That's what the book of Hebrews is really all about. Uh, if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, it's all about where, is, where does rest come from? And Hebrews echoes again and again for us. Your rest is found in the fact that you've been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is not like any other. And so my recognition this week was that I had, I had stopped or failed to look at something important like rest in my life through the lens of the cross, and because I'd failed to look at it through the lens of the cross, I really looked at it in an insufficient way, in a way that wasn't helpful and ultimately did not produce the end that needed to be produced. Well, if you've been with us a while, you know that we have been going through the book of Isaiah for several months. And what we're going to do now for the next four weeks leading up to Easter, or I guess three weeks leading up to Easter, and then Easter will be the fourth week, is we're going to take a little break from Isaiah. And we're going to spend some time focused on the cross. 
I just wanted us to spend some time thinking about the merit, the goodness, the power, the value of the cross of our Lord Jesus and to think about our lives uh, through the lens of the cross and how it applies to us. So this week what I want to talk to you about is how the cross, we're calling the whole series uh, Life Revealed, these next four weeks, Life Revealed, because we want to talk about how this week, how the cross reveals the purpose of life, what it says to about what is life's purpose and how does that get lived out, fleshed out daily, every day. And then next week we want to talk to you about how the cross reveals how valuable life is, how the cross speaks to us about how deeply and powerfully valuable every life is. And then lastly, we want to talk about where does joy come from in life? How does the cross reveal where we find joy? Not unlike how I think the cross revealed where rest comes from, the cross reveals where joy comes from. And so we want to talk about those things uh, a little bit. If I had a a song to apply to it, anybody, the old hymn, the old rugged cross, know that? And I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Yes, I mean, you know it. Absolutely. You can just have that song echoing in your ears over the next couple weeks because really what that song is about is about cherishing the cross of Jesus. We worship a crucified Savior, which 1 Corinthians tells us is foolishness to the world, but it is the very wisdom of God that we would worship one who has been crucified. And so while we know that doesn't make sense, in fact, you may be uh, one here today who you're just kind of, you know, you came to, with a little bit of a heart of skepticism and you're just wondering about all this faith thing. And we would say, we, we get that it's weird to worship a crucified Savior. It, it is backwards in the eyes of the world, but what we would tell you is God has caused light to shine in our hearts and on our eyes to cause us to see that there is no wisdom apart from the wisdom of the cross. That Christ is the wisdom of God. And so we want to proclaim nothing other than him and him crucified. We want to look at our life through that lens. And here's the thing I find that happens to me a lot. I'm guessing it might happen to you as well, is that we begin to see the cross as an instrument of our justification before God, as a payment for sin. And that's not wrong because that is precisely what it is. The cross is a payment for our sin, yours and mine. Jesus, the perfect one, laid down his life in payment for sin that you and I could never pay for, a debt that we had incurred that could not be satisfied apart from him and by anything that we would do. And so Jesus comes in and he offers his death as a, as a payment, as a substitute for my death. And then he rises from the dead. And we, we view the cross through that lens, and rightly so. But in viewing the cross only as a justification for our sin, what we fail to do often is we fail to see that the cross is not just a payment for our sin. The cross is also a lens through which we must look at all of life. That every area of our life must have the cross put up in front of it and we must look at that area through the cross. See, the cross, what it does is it's meant to create an ethic for Christians. It's meant to create a whole way of life. It's not just a tool to save you from hell. It is a tool to to guide you through all of life. So that as you look at the cross, if you're asking the question, what should I do in any scenario, the answer to that question can be found by answering another question. What does the cross dictate that I do? Do you understand? Are you with me? So the cross creates an ethic for the Christian that every one of our actions, every one of our attitudes is meant to be infused and, and, and filled with and saturated by an, a cross-shaped ethic. It is meant to, to dictate for us 
everything about life. Everything. There's nothing that the cross is not intended to touch and to shape. And by which we shouldn't say, oh, did, did my actions reflect the cross of my Lord Jesus, or did they reflect something else? Did they reflect a pursuit of power or perhaps a, a, a sense that I'm entitled to, whatever it may be? Or did they reflect the sacrificial love and the humility? Did they reflect the cross itself? That's really what I'm going to try and, if I can, help us make plain over the next several weeks. So, if, you'll, if you're willing to go there with me, now here's what I recognize. I'm asking for a reframing, perhaps, of your thinking. I'm asking you to go there with me and to be willing to let your thinking be reframed by the cross now to look at life and examine it and, in, more importantly, to ask the Holy Spirit to do that examination. Right? When I examine myself, I leave out all the worst parts. <laughs> I'm like, that one's fine. I won't, talk, I won't talk about that. But when you say, Holy Spirit, examine me, he just charges right in. And has a way of unveiling things that I wouldn't want unveiled. So we're going to look at that. Now I said we're going to start this week with this question about the purpose of life. How does the cross reveal the purpose of life? So let's start with that. If, if we're going to start with that, how does the cross reveal the purpose of life? Then a, a sort of obvious question that begs is what is the purpose of life? Yes? What is the purpose of life? Now, let me give a word of clarification because there's two ways. When someone asks that question, what is the purpose of life? There's two ways that you can mean that question. The first way you can mean that question is in a very specific, detailed kind of way. Uh, and it's, it's uh, certainly something we all ask at some point is, what am I made to do? Like, what is it that I'm supposed to do with my life? And usually when we ask that, like, what is the purpose of my life? We mean it in a, like, what's, what job should I be doing? Who should I marry? Right, you know, those kinds of questions, the very specific level questions about the, the job that I'm put here to do. That's kind of one level at which we ask those questions. I don't necessarily mean that. When I say what is the purpose of life, I mean this. Is there any broad overarching purpose for which all life exists? If some, some form of life exists, is there any purpose which we can say applies to every single living, breathing, organic thing on the planet, specifically all human life, is there any purpose which applies to all of it? Does that make sense? Those are, those are the, the first category I mentioned falls underneath the second category, right? So your specific job, the thing you've specifically been made to do, which is unique from other people, is, is it comes underneath the broad overarching purpose for which all of life exists, right? Now, anybody familiar with the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism? All my good church boys and girls out there, good job. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism is um, it's a liturgical old piece of literature. And a catechism is just this. All it is is it's a list of questions with responses to those questions that are meant to train up young people in their faith. So when you catechize somebody, what you're saying is, like in the old days, right, I as a pastor would visit your house and we would go through the Westminster Shorter Catechism together. I would ask you the questions and your kiddos would respond and I would judge you as parents by how well your kids responded to those. And then I'd walk out and tell everyone whether you were good or bad. No, I wouldn't do that. No, no, no. The point was to help you memorize and relate to key theological concepts, right? Key theological ideas that we need to understand. The very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, some of you probably know it, what is the chief end of man? 
What is the chief end? In other words, what is the purpose for which humankind exists? That's a pretty heady question to start with, right? And the answer that the Westminster Shorter Catechism offers to that question is a really good one. It's so simple, and it's this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, some of you might be familiar with John Piper. He's an author and a pastor. And he's written about that and done a little tweak on on the Westminster Catechism's answer to that question. And I like his tweak. He says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Just tying the fact that what we enjoy most is what we glorify most. When we are satisfied in God chiefly and most and first, then he is most glorified in us. And I like that subtle nuance there. But the point I want to direct you towards today is not necessarily the second half of that answer, but the first half, right? The scriptures make it really apparent that all life, the purpose of all life, without exception, is to glorify God. That applies to you if you are a Christian. It applies to you if you are not. That all living things exist for the glory of God. Listen to how the Bible talks about it. Uh, We've been in the book of Isaiah. How about Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, which says this is God talking. And he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. In other words, what the Lord is saying there is like, I'm not like anyone else. My glory, the glory that is due to me, is not like the glory that anything else has. And so I will not give it to anyone else. Now, often people object to that and they say to themselves, like, who wants to worship someone that's self-centered? But friend, let me just give a little, perhaps a little correction to that way of thinking. Remember, that you're absolutely right when it comes to all of us. The rest of us, if, if any one of us were to say, glorify me, right? I'm not gonna give my glory to anybody else. That would be wrong of us because we're not ultimately worthy of glory. We are imperfect, we fall short, we don't possess full knowledge. There's nothing about me which, de- which deserves glorification, right? But for the one who is ultimately worthy of all glory, the one who is without, without any fault, the one who is perfect, the one who's created everything, when that one says, I'm the Lord and you will glorify me and I will not give my glory to anyone else, he is right to do so. He is right to do so. He's the only one that's right to do so, but he's absolutely right to do so. Now, and here's the goodness of God. Friends, just just marvel at this for a moment. I know we've talked about this before, but marvel for a moment at the fact that this God who created everything and is without fault and possesses all knowledge and all power can absolutely, it is his divine right to say to us, you must glorify me and to just make it our duty to do that. He can just make it a, a, a chore in life for us that we must do that. And he's not wrong to do that. But this is how good God is. He has far from making our joy and satisfaction separate from his glory, he has made it so that we are designed so that we will experience joy and satisfaction and fullness when he gets glory. So the very thing we are purposed and made to do is also the very thing he says, oh, and you will find joy and fulfillment in the doing of it. He doesn't have to do that, but he does. How good is that? Church, how good is that? Yeah, this is our God. What mercy, what faithfulness, what kindness to say, oh, the thing you're made to do, you will find fulfillment and joy in doing it. You don't have to do that, but he does it. So again, 
That's Isaiah 42. But how about this? Just to go a little further, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Now into the New Testament and Paul talking to the Corinthians. And he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the what? To the glory of God. He has specifically in mind there evangelism. That's, that's the context of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. He's saying that whatever you do, do it in such a way that others would see God as good and worthy of glory. Whether you're eating or drinking or putting your hand to the plow, whatever you're doing, do it in such a way that you recognize that God should be glorified through the doing of that thing. And then just to go a little bit further in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, now at the very end, right? Other end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, there's this just great picture. In fact, the first song we sang today uh, it's called Revelation Song. It's based on this text. And you just, there's this picture, this glorious picture of, of God on his throne and his power and his immense beauty. And then gathered around that throne of these living creatures for which we really don't have a frame of reference. And they're bowing down in worship to God. And there's these 24 elders that are surrounding the throne and they are bowed down before it. And they are casting their crowns before the throne just over and over. And this is what those elders are saying. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive what? Glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So the Bible is so clear that our purpose, I mean, and I could just, those are three, I could give you hundreds, where the Bible is declaring to us your purpose, your purpose, living creature, one who draws breath right now, that breath is drawn so that you might glorify God. That's why you exist. So we have to start there, right? If what is the purpose of life? How does the cross reveal it? The first question is, what is it? It is to glorify God by enjoying him forever and enjoy him forever. It is to glorify God. Now, with that settled in our minds, here's the thing that Revelation 4, verse 11 just did for us, right? So I don't know if you're following it or not, because I said the cross reveals the purpose of life. But it just told us something in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, that God is worthy of glory, and the elders say he's worthy of glory. Why? Because what did he do? He created everything. He created everything. Therefore, in other words, what the elders are saying, like by virtue of the fact that you're the one that had the power and the ability to create all the things that are alive, it's right that those things should turn around then and give you glory as their creator. So here's what that tells us. Actually, before we ever get to the cross, if you picture human history, right, from the instant of creation up to the point of the cross, before the cross of Jesus ever comes into play, all living things should be able to know that they must give God glory, that that is their purpose in life. Why? Because he created. Which means that we, this sounds weird to say, which means we don't need the cross per se to understand that our purpose is to glorify God. We can understand it just from the fact that he created. That's what we're learning there in Revelation chapter 4. But what then, so what does the cross do? So you tell me, Trent, my purpose is to glorify God. The right next question, right, the right next question is how? Right? Am I just left to myself to figure out if that's my purpose as a living, breathing creature, Am I just left to try and figure out and kind of hope? Like, okay, I'll do this. Did that work? Was that glorifying to God? Uh, okay, well, I'll try this over here. Maybe that didn't work. Did, does this work? Does this glorify God? Maybe, yes, I don't know. Have you ever wondered if something you did glorified God or not? Not been sure? 
here's where the cross comes into play. Because while I can know that my purpose is to glorify God simply because he's creator, the question becomes, how does glorifying him happen? What does it look like? And the cross is the thing which defines glorifying God for us. In other words, it gives us the content of what it actually looks like to glorify God. So in other words, if I'm asking the question, how do I glorify God? The answer to that question is look at the cross as the ultimate act of God's glorification and measure all your actions accordingly. Measure everything you do, measure everything you think, measure everything you say by the cross. And if it measures, if it aligns with the cross, then it is glorifying to God. And if it does not, then it does not glorify God. Are you with me, church? So the cross becomes, again, back to my, my just main point, the cross is not just an instrument of justification, not just a payment for sin. The cross creates an ethic. It's a lens. I mean, you know when you go to the 3D movie and you get the glasses, right? And if you don't get the glasses, what does the screen look like? It looks really blurry, right? And it's like, it's out of focus and you're, you, you, know, you can't enjoy the movie as much. You're like, I can't really make sense of that that well. You put the glasses on and now everything's popping off the screen at you. Like everything zooms into focus, the colors become brighter and now whatever it was that was supposed to be coming at me off the screen is now coming at me. The cross is like that for the follower of Jesus. Because that, that's what it is to be a follower of Jesus, is to live your life through the lens of the cross, to take the cross, put it up to your eyes and say, oh, now everything makes sense. Now everything comes into focus because I'm looking at my suffering. I'm looking at my relationships. I'm looking at my work. I'm looking at my competing. I'm looking at my rest. I'm looking at all of it with these cross glasses on that help me understand whether or not the thing I'm doing and the way I'm thinking and the way I'm behaving, whether that glorifies God or does not. That's how the cross reveals our purpose to us. It reveals the content of glorifying God. Okay, church, are you with me? So here's what we could do. I, I just wanna look at some practical ways this plays itself out in a couple different areas. And I've just chosen two. I started with five. You're gonna thank the Lord that we're just doing two, okay? There's just so many, right? I mean, there's so, I mean how, how do you narrow it down, right? Like we could take the cross and put it as a lens up against anything. So here's what I did. I cheated, by the way. Uh, if you picked up the sermon notes and if you didn't get them on your way out, I added three extra ones in there and I just wrote what I would have said. Um, so you're like, you could just do that every week and just <laughs> hand it to us and we'll just all walk out and we'll beat the other churches to lunch. Never gonna happen. All right, so we're gonna look at two. We're gonna look at our relationships, just um, broadly speaking, right? So that's gonna include marriage and our kids and friendships and acquaintances and enemies, right? Think about our relationships. How do we put the cross, the lens of the cross up to our relationships? And then the second one is our work or our studies, if you're a student, right? Our work slash studies. I want us to think about those two, right? So uh, if you've got your Bibles, go to John chapter 13. That's where we're gonna look today. John chapter 13. So how do I glorify God in my relationships? That's the first question. How do I glorify God in my relationships? And the answer is this, through sacrificial love. Through sacrificial love. John 13, the context here is the Last Supper. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. 
And then you're gonna notice the first thing that verse 31 is gonna say is after he went out, the he who went out in verse 31 is Judas Iscariot. He has gone out to betray Jesus. And so Jesus is now speaking his last, some of his last words to his disciples. They will move from the Last Supper to the garden where he'll begin to pray and then he'll be arrested and he'll be crucified the next day. So verse 31, after, when he had gone out, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Just think about how sad that would be, someone who's walked with Jesus for three years. A new commandment, now this is crucial because he's just been alluding to his death, right? Where I'm going, you can't come. Now the son is gonna be glorified, right? And then, then he's gonna say this crucial word, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So let's just trace that out for a second. Now you notice that, okay, Judas is left. And then the first thing that Jesus says after Judas leaves is, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now you might expect him to say, now is the Son of Man betrayed. Now is the Son of Man going to be crucified. Now is the Son of Man handed over. That's not what he says. Now is the Son of Man glorified and the Father is glorified in him. By the way, he's making a huge claim when the next thing he says is, and the Father will glorify him because he glorifies the Father. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm worthy of equal glory with the Father. Which perhaps if you are in that camp of thinking of saying Jesus was just a good teacher, um, a good teacher does not claim to be equal to God and worthy of glory equal to God. And that's exactly what Jesus is claiming here. So it's, you're gonna have to get past that hurdle if you wanna turn Jesus into just a good teacher. Uh, it's a tough hurdle to get over because he again and again claims to be equal in authority and glory with God the Father. So he says now, right, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. What's he talking about when he says that now he's going to be glorified? He's talking about the cross. Same thing when he says, where I'm going, you can't come. I'm, I'm going to be crucified. I'm gonna be put on the cross and put to death. And so he's talking about his cross as the instrument of his glorification. Do you see that? He's saying, I'm going to be crucified. That's the same as being glorified because that's what's going to happen, right? That's the method of my glorification is this cross. And now thinking about the cross, with the cross centered in his vision, having just spoken three sentences about it, the very next thing he's going to say is, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, which is kind of like, okay, that makes sense. Everything you've taught us up to this point, like that aligns, right? Everything Jesus had done in his ministry. His disciples would not have been surprised by him saying, love one another. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. But the qualifying remark is the important one here for us today because what does he say? He says, he says love one another, and then he qualifies that love. How? As I have loved you. And he's just been talking about the cross. What is the major way in which he loves the disciples? Through his death, through his sacrifice for them. Now, in one sense, you could, you could say broadly that statement, as I have loved you, applies to everything Jesus has done in his ministry, right? But in a very specific sense, in this context, what it really applies to is the, his going to the cross, 
And he's saying, if you're going to love one another, if, if what you're going to do is actually gonna be defined as love, it's going to have to look like the kind of love I'm about to show you, which means it's going to be marked by sacrifice. That's what love is. Love, cross-saturated, stained love, is sacrificial love. So the question, how do we glorify God in our relationships? How does the cross teach us how we glorify God in our relationships? Is by sacrificing for one another. It's by living sacrificial lives. That's where you, whether you really know you love one another or not. Just go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, and think about what Paul says to husbands and wives. Uh, you may remember this, right? Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then the very next, the very next phrase is, having what? Given himself up for her. What's he doing? He's saying, husbands, the crucifixion is the key to understanding how to love your wife. If you want to know if you really love your wife, ask yourself whether or not you are willing to die for her. Not just in a willingness to lay down your life, but in a willingness to live in such a way that she is more satisfied by Jesus every day because you're sacrificing for her. That's the call. He's saying, look, you want to, you want to know in your relationships whether or not you glorify God, put the lens of the cross up against it and ask yourself if you are sacrificing. So let's just flesh that out in a couple ways. To glorify God in our relationships, we have to sacrifice. We have to sacrifice our preferences for the needs of others. We have to sacrifice our preferences for the needs of others. So let me talk to our students here for just a second. Let me pick on you for one second, right? Keep your commitments that you make rather than bailing because something better came up. If you want your relationship stained by the cross and the love of the cross, then sacrifice the thing that you think is better by fulfilling the commitment of the thing you made. The, the commitment of the thing you made a commitment to. Don't bail on that thing because something better came up. That's not what cross-saturated love looks like. Or how about we have to sacrifice our time to meet the needs of the other. Sacrifice of time is a huge expression of cross-saturated, cross-stained love. Husbands, husbands, you come home at the end of a long day. I'm so guilty of this. Don't turn the game on. Sit on the couch with your wife and ask her about her day. Stop, sit, listen. We have to sacrifice our safety for the protection of others. That's sacrificial cross love. This is really the call to missions. The call to, to missions, to global missions, is the call to forsake your own safety and go to places that are unsafe so that people who do not know the Lord Jesus might hear the gospel, might hear and respond to the gospel, that you might risk your physical safety and your physical comfort so that someone else would be protected spiritually for all eternity. This is the call of the gospel on all of our lives. Don't. Look at your life through the lens of being safe. What a waste that would be. Take risks for the sake of the gospel. Listen to the Lord. He's calling some of you. He's calling you and telling you, lay it down. Put aside your safety and go to unsafe places because the gospel requires it of you. This is what the cross says to do. This is what the cross calls us to do calls us to sacrifice our mental and emotional energy for the, rest, for the rest of the other. I find this one to be a hard one. If you're like me, sometimes are you three steps ahead in your day thinking about what's gonna happen later on? 
in the middle of the thing that you're doing instead of being fully present in the thing that you're doing. That's a form of sacrifice, by the way, to say I will sustain my mental energy and my emotional energy in this space with this person in this time right where God has placed me. I'm not looking past it, right? I'm not even in this conversation thinking past what you're saying to the thing that I'm gonna say next and just planning my next comment. I'm gonna think and listen and be fully present. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the sacrifice of, of my own pride and my own sense of my own, like I need to be heard and I'm going to listen for understanding. Like, I have a tough time with that one, right? So if that's you, I won't say you're in good company, but you're not alone. So let's look then at the next thing, right? The next question. If that's how do I glorify God in my relationships, what does the cross say about that? The next one is, how do I glorify God in my work or in my studies? And here's the answer. By working for and in the name of Jesus. And I'll show you what I mean in Colossians chapter three. You can turn over to Colossians three. By working for and in the name of Jesus. So I love this. Listen to what verse 16 says in Colossians chapter three. He says, Paul again, talking to the Colossians, says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now think about what does he mean? That's a nice turn of phrase, but what does it actually mean for Paul to write, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? What he means is this, richly means to let it kind of permeate everything, right? Let it kind of grow and fill all the space that there is in you to fill. Well, what is the word of Christ that is supposed to do all that dwelling, all that filling work. The word of Christ is the message of a crucified Savior. That's what it is, a crucified Savior who's been resurrected. He says, take that message and let it fill every part of you. So do you see what Paul is saying? This is exactly what we're talking about here. Paul is right there saying, let this truth of the cross permeate everything that you do. You with me, church? Okay, so that's what verse 16 is saying. And then he's going to go down and say something about our work, about how we work. In verse 17 and verse 23, he's going to say, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the first thing that we see is he says, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, what he's saying, do it in such a way that at the end of the day, whatever you made, whatever the, your, work, your day's work was, if you created something, whether it be clean laundry or a sermon or a, a, a broken car that's now fixed, right? Whatever is your, your end of the day product, could you say this was done, like represent, it represents Jesus. What I just did represents Jesus to whoever I did it for. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's in the name of the Lord Jesus, doing whatever I do in the name of the Lord Jesus is about doing it in such a way that it represents him. Now watch what he says in verse 23 because he's gonna go in a different direction, but complimentary. Because in verse 23, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as not in the name of Jesus, but as for the Lord and not for men. So we have work in the name of Jesus and work for the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is, do your work in such a way that it represents Jesus to those who look on and do your work in such a way that you can offer it to the Lord as if it's for him. It's given to him and it represents him to those who look on. Those are the two aspects of our work or our studies that cause us to be able to say, oh, this is what, this is what the cross calls me to in my work. Now, there's a couple of qualifying remarks he makes here in this text that are really, I think, helpful about what it looks like to work in the name of the Lord and what it looks like to work for the Lord. 
The first one is in verse 17 when he says, let me just grab it here. When he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he follows it by saying, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he's saying, when you work in the name of the Lord, one of the things that should mark that, that's an indicator that that's taking place, is that you are having a heart filled with gratitude, with thankfulness for the work that you've been given to do. Now this is tough, because I think a lot of us sometimes, we don't like our jobs. We don't like the work we've been given to do, right? We're thinking like, oh my goodness, if I have to do this one more time, right? But what, a, what the cross informs us is, is that there is no, look, when you look at your work through the lens of the cross, the reality is there is no work, or perhaps I'll say there's no moral work that, cannot, that is not kingdom work, that cannot be work done for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, right? Whether it be you're a lawyer or a doctor or a janitor or a teacher or whatever, right? That there's a way in which that work can be done in the name of the Lord and Some of us, honestly, look, if the cross, which is this horrendous, horrendous thing, can become a work that reconciles humankind to God, then there is no work that cannot be done for reconciliation purposes. There is no redemptive, there's no work that cannot be redemptive in its very nature if the cross can be redemptive. Do you see it? And so he's saying, do all your work in this cross-saturated vision of the fact that that work is something you've been given. And be grateful, be thankful for the work you've been given to do. And some of us spend our time thinking, I want a bigger, more important thing to do. I wanna be given a bigger thing. My friends, you will never get a bigger thing until you understand how the small thing that you're doing now is absolutely a, a work of the cross. It's a redemptive work. He is calling you to be grateful, to be thankful, for the work that he's given you to do and to do it in the name of Jesus. The next thing is in verse 23 when he says, work heartily as for the Lord. And this is just a simple one. Work hard. That's what he means. Work hard. If you're working in such a way that it's for the Lord, look at the cross. Jesus saw his work through to completion, didn't he? And how grateful are we that he didn't halfway through go, this is too hard, I am done. I don't wanna do this anymore. He saw it through to completion and he calls us in the same manner to look at the cross and to work hard at all that we have been given to do. That's what the cross calls us to in our work, in our studies, to not stop halfway, to not make half efforts at the thing that we've been made to do, to work diligently and hard, tenaciously. Now look, this is not an excuse for workaholism in the name of Jesus, okay? Because here's what that looks like. Workaholism in the name of Jesus, like I'm working hard as for the Lord. Here's the indicator that you are just excusing that is workaholism is always about your power and your reputation, not about Jesus. And when you engage in in that, here's the indicator that's happening is you are sacrificing your other work that God has called you to do, like being a good husband for the sake of this work. But for today, right, that's a little caveat, but for today, it's sufficient to say that God calls us to, when we work for the Lord, what the cross says is work to completion, work to fulfillment all the way, do the work as it should be done. And that should eliminate our half measures. Christians should, should be the hardest workers in every workplace because they're the ones who recognize I've got a crucified savior and I work as for him. So, 
friends, I hope that we can begin to see that the cross is, again, it's not just a payment. It's not just a payment for our justification. It is a means by which we encounter an ethic that defines all of life and shapes everything, the way we think and how we act and how we live. Over the next couple of weeks, that's, that's my hope. That's been my prayer. As God would take and, and reorient us to the cross again. We just need that from time to time, right? We need from time to time to be brought back to the cross and to remember the cross is the wisdom of God and it dictates everything about how I'm supposed to live and think. It's supposed to shape me so that when people look at my life, they, they might not put it this way, but they would say that person's life is marked. It's marked by all the same characteristics that the cross of Jesus possesses. It's marked by the humility of the cross, Philippians 2. It's marked by the purity of the cross and the righteousness purchased there, Philippians chapter four. It is marked in every way by the character of the cross. That's, that's my ambition, is just to reintroduce us to that again over these next few weeks. We need to, we're gonna worship the Lord to close. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray and worship team will come back up. Let me encourage you as they're making their way out here. Just pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is sort of guiding you to right now. My guess is that my sense of how the Spirit does these things often is that, you know, I sit in a sermon and there's usually the Spirit is trying to prompt me to see maybe that there's some area of my life where I'm not looking at it through the lens of the cross. And I, you know, as the pastor, I don't know what that is. I, I can't know. But the Spirit knows, and He wants to guide you to that. He's a gentle Spirit, and He's loving, and He's merciful. So He wants to show that to you so that you might then begin to say, okay, help me put the, help me put the glasses of the cross up to that and understand how that needs to change. So just deal with the Lord this week as you're rising in the mornings and opening His Word. Let Him speak that to you. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we do love you. You are unique. There's no one like you worthy of all praise and honor. And so we pray that you'd receive this song now that we sing just as a, we've heard your word declared to us and we wanna sit underneath it and then our, our response to your word, our admission that your word is good and that it's right, where it comforts us, it's good and where it convicts us, it's good. And so our, our response is just to sing back to you. That's why we do this now, Lord. We do it for you as, and as an acknowledgement that all that you say in your word is right and it's good and it's true and we want to respond with an amen to it and with a submission and a humility to it so that you might shape our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.